The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy and talk. We thank you for listening wherever you get us on radio, on live stream, on podcast, on, you know, iTunes, iHeartRadio, all of them. We're on everywhere. We're glad you listen. But we also are glad that you watch on um, Twitter, now X, uh, also on Facebook Live, uh, LinkedIn uh, Live, uh, all of that. And uh, we're glad that you participate. And we're also glad that this woman is joining us today. And that she and the organization that she works for and is speaking on behalf of today um, represent so many people, so many workers, so much of our population, that middle working class. Today, we have Maria Soma, Organizing Director for the United Steel Workers on. She's been an organizer for her entire career. First, she was a community organizer. Then she was a labor organizer. She started the Steel Workers back in 2001 as a healthcare workers organizer, and she became Organizing Director back in 2015. We had Maria previously uh, on the show. She was such an excellent guest. We said we got to have her back, and we're thrilled to have her back today. In the meantime, check out all that the USW does. Go to USW.org. Be sure to follow them and find out opportunities for not just jobs for you, um, but uh, how to unionize or all that the unions are doing. Uh, follow them on X, uh, formerly Twitter and Instagram, at Steelworkers on Facebook. Go to Facebook.com forward slash Steelworkers. And once again, their website is USW.org. Uh, Maria, thank you for joining us today. Glad to have you back on the show. I hope you had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving. Lots to be uh, thankful for. Um, and we're going to talk about some of that. Yes, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. Well, I think that when you look at the economy, right, throughout the entire economy, uh, workers throughout the economy, the, the middle class, the working class, whether they're in the background that you had, which, you know, was in healthcare or healthcare specifically with the USW, uh, automakers, um, what we're seeing is people thankful for their power, right? And specifically their collective power, that power to ensure that they have fair contracts, they're getting paid a decent wage, and that they have safe working conditions. You know, it's interesting, I'm uh, into um, this show, I used to be into Downton Abbey, and I'm into this show on HBO called The Gilded Age. And um, it's Julian Fellows who did a Downton Abbey. But right now in the, and I don't want to be a spoiler uh, alert <laughs> person, you know, out there, but right now they've got the, uh, the rich of the rich, um, who are living along Central Park back in New York in, uh, I think, the late uh, 18, uh, early 1900s, uh, starting to butt heads with their workers who are simply saying, we want an eight-hour workday, eight hours <laughs> of sleep, and eight hours to do what we want. And one of the guys said, what's so bad about that? And it's just interesting how far back um, unions have been fighting and uh, people, workers, have been fighting across the economy, whether you know it was not automakers back then, 
uh, or healthcare workers, different trades, but still using their collective power to ensure they have fair contracts and safe working conditions. This is not as old as Adam and Eve, but pretty much almost as old as we, the United States, are. Um, so, so let's talk about that. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing people do uh, within workplaces like never before, at least that I can remember as an adult, um, is organizing at even a higher level. W would you say that's true and that's the first step uh, to wielding your collective power? Absolutely. I think that the interest in, in um, what a union can provide in terms of benefits for workers in their workplace is amazing. And it's funny when you said eight hours of work, right, uh, uh, workers are working more and more and more. It's rare to find a place where you're just working eight hours a day. It feels like in some cases that we're going backwards um, in, in several workplaces because the demand from employers is just so much more um, uh, uh, harsh and requirements of jobs. Uh, and, and we're not seeing while workers are, you know, we always hear that the American worker is one of the most productive workers in the world, and that is because we work more than most other industrialized countries, and it's requirement for the from our employers. And I think workers are looking as a way to go back and find balance again, and that balance that they found is using that collective power that you so eloquently talked about and figuring out how do we use that collective power to try to get back to a balanced um, workplace again. And we're seeing that all over, in, in, certainly in several professions, in several industries, uh, in several sectors of the economy. Do you think this, is, this moment is unique in a sense in labor right now? And this unique moment is being capitalized upon uh, by workers. I mean, first they're organizing, but they are seeking, rightfully so, um, greater protections on the job. So in, a, in other words, are we, do you think in a renaissance period, you know, or, you know, a reawakening of, hey, um, you know, we, we need to be safer and we and we can ask for these things and we will. You know, it, it's hard to say that just just now. I mean, what we're seeing is over the last several years, this resurgence of workers recognizing, again, the value of what a, a, a collective power can look like through a union contract. You know, if you use collective power where people will go out on a, a wildcat strike for a day or, for, or workers will walk out for a couple of hours, that's to deal with one specific instance or issue. But what we're talking about using that solidarity and collective power for long-term change in a workplace. And I think that's the difference. And so when we talk about this, this revival, <clears throat> I think the pandemic really taught workers their place in society. We all think of ourselves in the middle class, whether we make $8 an hour or we make $80 an hour. Um, in this country. And so part of this recognition is to say that, wait, I am also part of the working class and that a lot of what um, I am required to do is dictated solely by my employer. And at times that doesn't feel right. And at times what the employer dictates isn't right. And so how do we deal with this? And so for the last eight or nine years, we've seen this resurgence of people understanding that value through approval rates, union approval rates. Gallup does their poll every year, and that poll is indicating this rise of union approval. How does that translate into union organizing is what the age we're in now. And I think that's, that's the difference. 
approval do, do you versus think that, organizing. I, I'm wondering, was it the hot labor market, low unemployment, or, or both that have helped this? All of it. All of it. And the pandemic. All of it. The hot labor market where, you know, employers are saying, and they are also understanding the value of their workforce and understanding that they need to, you know, in order to recruit and in order to retain, that they have to do things differently. And that's definitely part of it. And as a result, because of the low unemployment that's happening there, people who want to find work can find work. Um, you know, employers are, are altering and changing, and that's why you're seeing some of these historic uh, gains in, in, in contract bargaining right now. You talked about the pandemic. How did the pandemic help? Is it that people, you know, now that are saying, hey, we need these greater protections, is it that they saw that they were not, they were essential workers, but they realized how essential they were as workers? I absolutely believe that workers um, felt, understood their value in the economy and with their employers during the pandemic when uh, so many workers were classified as um, uh, essential workers. You know, you think about police, firefighters, healthcare as typical centers, but we represent uh, essential workers, excuse me, we represent manufacturing workers and industrial workers as, you know, a large segment of our membership, and they were deemed essential workers. So, you know, someone who built a compressor was deemed an essential worker. And I think people understood that uh, as they were forced to work more and more, that they were all essential. And I think that absolutely helped with them understanding that they were absolutely needed in order for their employer to continue to, to, to make a profit and for the economy to continue to run. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we're coming up on a break, but I want to point out, and I, I've been saying Carnegie, Carnegie Hall my whole life, and I always hear now, <laughs> I'm radio and TV, Carnegie. And I, I'm like, yeah. I guess I've been saying it wrong, but workers at the Carnegie or Carnegie Libraries in Pittsburgh, uh, they recently organized just as the pandemic was starting, they were able to negotiate cutting edge health and safety prote uh, protections and, and more Carnegie, Carnegie Museums um, also. Uh, some of them uh, shared a building with those library workers, so they organized as well during the pandemic. And while they had additional challenges, ultimately they were also able to push for greater protections, raises up to 35%. We're going to talk about that and more with Maria right after this quick break. I'm Leslie Marshall. Maria Soma, Organizing Director for the United Steel Workers, is with us. Check out the USW at usw.org. Follow them on X and Instagram at Steelworkers and on Facebook, facebook facebook.com forward slash steelworkers. I'm Leslie Marshall back after this. We are back. Happy Tuesday. Welcome or welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. Maria Soma is our guest organizing director for the United Steelworkers. Please check out their website, usw.org. Follow them on X, formerly Twitter and Instagram at Steelworkers. And on Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash steelworkers. Like and follow there. Uh, Maria, thank you for holding. Um, welcome back. Um, I want to move to Washington, D.C. now, and specifically this administration, the Biden administration, and this president, uh, Joe Biden. Um, again, uh, I think I'm old enough to remember, and looking back, <laughs> that th th this administration and this president specifically is arguably the most pro-labor president uh, in, recent, in recent memory. Um, is that accurate? And is his administration and things they have done, such as the infrastructure, uh, you know, package signing that into law, you know, pushing for that, um, 
does that help the workers to exercise uh, their right in forming unions? And does that play into uh, this surge of, you know, people saying, you know, we demand a fair wage and we want proper working conditions because we are essential. This is how essential we are. Absolutely. I, I would agree with your statement about uh, President Biden being the most pro-labor president, um, in, 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 at least in my lifetime. Um, I, I think that uh, what he has done is put, you know, there have been a lot of presidents who have supported labor, and I say that in quotes. And the rhetoric is there, and a lot of politicians who, who uh, support the workers' rights. But what President Biden has done is actually enacted that in the pieces of legislation that that he uh, managed, you know, that he managed to get through the uh, Congress, really lays out what does it mean when we're talking about government expenditures and what the government is going to support. What does it mean to really use that power of the presidency and uh, uh, and the money? that comes with it through agencies and through procurement process to really support American workers and production in this country. And so what that means is that when the government is deciding if they're going to support private industry, that the requirement they can put on it is to say to those employers, you've got to follow the law. You've got to allow workers to freely choose doing an election process if they want to uh, uh, to form a union or not. And and if you do all that, you know, that's fantastic, and we want to be here and support you with the public tax dollars. And I think that's fair. The other added thing that he said in, in all of this, uh, all of these bills and all of this procurement money is that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that things should be made in this country. You know, one of the things that uh, that the pandemic taught us is that our supply chain is completely broken. We are dependent on so many different countries and imports that come in for the littlest things to large major things that help run our, our, our economies. And so that part of this money that says that if taxpayer money is going to be used, we want to make and incentivize employees to make and build things back in this country mm-hmm. so that we're reliant upon ourselves. You add that and to say that and the incentives around making sure that workers' uh, rights to choose, freely choose union um, representation along with the, as, as one of the encouragements that the president has, has done, incentivizing that along with the money that says, and if you do, right, here's what we're willing to do to support that and create new businesses uh, and, and build back the supply chain in our country. You put those two pieces together and you've got someone who has gone beyond the rhetoric of supporting the American worker and putting it into practice. So I think he is absolutely the most pro-labor president that I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, unprecedented support. Actually, I agree with you 100% there. I mean, the whole approach from uh, the government, and and to your point, this has helped tip the balance back toward the workers and away from those corporations, which certainly we know have been greedy. And I think a lot of these things are just common sense. I mean, sadly, we needed the pandemic, I guess, to wake up to that reality that if you're buying stuff from China, and why would you? I mean, there's a reason things are cheaper. I mean, you do get what you pay for to a certain degree. You know, I always say if I buy three T-shirts for $10, I can wear them once because they're going to fall apart in the wash uh, after one washing. One, two, you don't know the conditions the workers are working in to make those, including uh, child labor, um, Uyghur labor, you know, uh, forced uh, labor, uh, you know, indentured servitude, uh, you know, or even uh, slavery. And, um, 
we we also um you know why like in china they're you know they have this patriotism there a surge of it and and pride that they want to make their products they want to have chinese products and they want to make their products and they want to buy their products you know well um, america you know had that you know for years uh, not trying to date myself when i was a little girl i remember the song you know when you are buying look for the union label and i won't sing anymore um but but, it, but it's no, but it's very true because if you're investing in your own country, in your own economy, you're investing in your fellow man and woman, your fellow Amer- American, uh, whether that is a big corporation or whether that is a small mom and pop, you know, organization. You know, you you have to you know look to that. You know, we as consumers have a responsibility, and then you're you're also helping your own family because everybody knows somebody who's involved in that you know process of making it, even if you're part of the supply chain and buying it, right? And then if you're not buying things in China, you don't have to worry about a ship being you know stuck in a port and not able to deliver the goods because of a situation with trucks. Uh, to the rest of the country, you know, you 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 cut that out. You cut out the you cut out the middleman, and you're getting a better quality uh, made uh, product with regulations that ensure if your kid, your toddler is chomping on that toy, they don't have lead levels that are going through the roof that are entering their body. I mean, to me, it's it's just all uh, common sense. Uh, back to the president and his administration. He did a few things, and uh, one of which is he formed the Task Force on Worker organizi- Organizing and Empowerment. That mm-hmm. resulted in, in 70 recommendations to increase visibility, support, awareness, promotion of collective bargaining, ensure effective enforcement of existing uh, labor laws. And um, also, uh, I had mentioned uh, our infrastructure package, and you know we have what we had a D minus or D plus on our best day. Uh, because of the crumbling infrastructure. But to your point, the Biden administration paired that with strong build America, buy America requirements, talking about make it here, buy it here, and buy from those making it here, and prioritizing employers with strong labor standards. Want to point out something, Uh, electric school bus maker Bluebird, right? They received tens of millions of dollars in support through the EPA. And when workers at Bluebird overwhelmingly voted to join the USW this past spring, their hard work coupled with the administration's efforts to ensure tax dollars went to supporting good jobs, healthier communities, and that uh, paid off. Uh, Touching quickly uh, before the break, um, there's more potential now, too, because now we're transitioning to clean energy, clean technology, electric vehicles. Um, so there's more raw materials and more jobs, right? More opportunities? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I, when we think about Bluebird, and I know we're going to break, but that is one of the oldest American bus companies. There's only two large uh, uh, school bus companies, and Bluebird is one of them. They've been around for over 100 years. And so when those workers who attempted to organize four times before the steel workers came around and helped them were unable to do it, through kind of this incentive and through the bully pulpit of the president and the administration, the employer recognized that he, they, allow, they had to allow the workers a free and fair election. Absolutely. And when they did that, overwhelmingly supported us. Absolutely. Back with Maria Soma from USW. Check out their website, USW.org. Follow them on X and Twitter at Steelworkers and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash steelworkers. Hey there, we are back. We are me, Leslie Marshall and Maria Soma. She's organizing director for the United Steelworkers. Please check out the website and all the USW does, USW, and they do a lot. 
a lot more than you think and a lot more than steal. Uh, USW.org. Follow them on X, formerly Twitter and Instagram at Steelworkers and also on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Steelworkers. Maria, thank you uh, for holding once again and uh, welcome back. Um, One of the things we have seen, whether we watch movies like Nomadland um, or whether we live in communities that we have seen affected um, by good jobs that can create a community and a lack of jobs or disappearance of jobs can destroy and demolish uh, a road or a race, a, a community. Um, so it, it's essential. It's not just that you want, you know, a good job, good paying job, safe job, proper health care, time off, all of that. Um, but it's essential that jobs, whether you're a miner, you're manufacturing, you know, from A to Z, um, that they're good community supporting jobs. Right. I mean, because that ensures a worker that they can exercise their right uh, to organize. Can you speak to us about that? Because. You know, you can just have a job, but if you don't have a job with that freedom, if you don't have a job with that insurance, um, it's not as easy getting up in the morning and going to work. Absolutely right. And and I think that I mean, we spoke earlier in the show about how many hours workers actually spend at work. I know that a lot of the workers I talk to spend a majority of their life at work. And so when I talk to people and, and, and there's lots of, of, lots of um, funders right now looking to fund uh, figuring out how to involve community and in all of this infrastructure money and how do we get community organizations and how do we get people who've been left out of this economy back into the economy. And one of the things I say is if you want to look at a community and try to help it, then you have to help it through work because that's where the majority of people spend their time. And the way that you can do that is through a good union contract, because there at least they can come together and ensure what you talked about, a safe workplace. People can come home alive uh, from work, that people have vacation and holidays and that people are um, paid a living wage so that they can afford to spend time with their families. All of that comes through a good union contract. And that union contract, if they help those workers, then those workers in turn will help their communities. It's a Age old, and when the workers don't have that type of support and infrastructure in place to help them, then communities suffer for it because the workers are suffering. So absolutely, they're connected and tied together. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you want to talk about just one example, and there are many. Um, there's one model uh, of many um, that that seemed to be ideal. Uh, employers followed and continue to follow the model of Cleveland Cliffs. Right? They mm-hmm. agreed to adhere to true neutrality. Uh, They allowed Mm -hmm. workers to choose for themselves whether they want union representation. Um, And there are other employers uh, employers out there, uh, you know, people especially working more in the clean energy um, areas, Mm -hmm. whether it's rechargeable batteries or wind uh, turbines um, that, you know, could follow this example, respect their workers you know, because if they listen to the workers, they would have less turnover. They would have more stability in their workforce. Um, and then they could get the money funding from the administration, you know, that the Biden administration, you know, is a pro- is providing. It's a win-win. Why do you think that some of these companies are dragging their feet with uh, regard to this, especially uh, the employers that are in more of the clean energy um, manufacturing areas? 
I think for years, unions have had such a bad rap in the economy, and employers always think negatively about us. Um, and in a lot of cases, and I'm glad you mentioned Cleveland Cliffs, because that's an employer that we have worked hand-in-hand hand with. We represent yep. thousands of members from their, from their mines to the manufacturing um, facilities to processing facilities that they have. And we work together to make sure that that company is successful. And when they're successful through our contracts, we make sure they share that success with our miners. And so we recently did an organizing drive at one of their mines up in northern Minnesota, and that, again, had been tempted several times. And what we said was, just let them freely choose. Don't speak out against it. Don't hold anyone accountable. Don't no. have captive audience meetings. Don't do all the stuff that employers used to do, and let them choose. And they did. They respected that neutrality agreement, and they allowed the workers to choose, and we won. And they got their union in place. Now, other employers could choose to do that. We're not asking them to just hand us members. What we're asking them to do is, one, follow the law. Two, just remain completely neutral and let the employees choose. Why they don't do it, I think it's all about power, pure and simple power. Because unionized workforces and unionized employers make more money together, right? And so if they want to be a successful employee, then partner with your workers and partner with them through their union. But the employers just don't want to. Companies don't want to share power. It is simply about power and doing whatever they want, whenever they want, with whomever they want. And those days are, are, are coming to an end. Yeah, very true, especially when we look at, you know, not just clean energy and clean energy jobs, but really where we're going as a society. Uh, we talked about China before. We talked about, you know, mm-hmm. making more products here, buying more products here. Um, I think the pandemic showed us, you know, even more so that we not only shouldn't, but we can't rely on places like China. And we can't rely on places like China if we want to meet our environmental goals, right? So mm-hmm. if somebody's into the environment and they're, you know, not as big on, you know, labor, um, you know, if we build our own domestic supply chain, if we lay the framework, then we know um, the future. We know that they're they're good jobs. They're good paying jobs. Uh, they have you know proper health care, uh, proper safety standards, um, and not just that, but you know following the regu- regulatory standards with regard to admissions and things like that, so that we reach our environmental goals. And and all of that comes in an American union job, uh, not relying on places like China. Uh, can you speak to that? Our environmental goals. Can you speak to that? Our reliance on China. Absolutely. I mean, I think that when you think about it, right, what is the environmental cost and carbon footprint of transporting a, uh, uh, an object that's been made in China that doesn't have the regulations and the environmental regulations and any of the health and safety protocols that you talked about? Think about that product that's being made over there without any of those regulations being shipped over here, the carbon footprint, then being from the, sh- from the port, being trucked across the country to right. these stores. Right. You think about the environmental footprint that has happened over one of those T-shirts that you talked about. Right. If you're an environmentalist, you really should. That all is a cost. Those fossil fuels is a cost to the environment. And so when you want to be a good uh, steward of our climate and of this environment and our earth, you, you have to think about building locally. You have to think about all of that. And we can reduce that carbon footprint by 
by creating a domestic supply chain here. And the reliance on other countries for us, again, proven through the pandemic, um, is that, you know, supply chain is controlled by forces outside of, of uh, I should say, outside of our control. And, and that is the pandemic, which is, uh, you know, that was outside of our, all of our control. There's geopolitical warfare. There's other issues that come into play when you think about reliance on countries that, that our times may be not so friendly to us or that we may not be so friendly towards. And if we continue to put all of our eggs in those baskets rather than in our own basket, then we are putting ourselves in jeopardy. And so when you put the environment and the degradation to this uh, world uh, and thinking through the carbon footprint of importing all of that, um, all of those products, and you talk about the, uh, the, the countries that are actually producing all of these things and, and, and what our relationship is like with them, you put those two things together and what President Biden is doing only makes sense. We have to incentivize here if we want to save our planet. We have to incentivize clean technology being utilized and built here and that um uh, and that, uh, you know, that domestic sp- supply chain is vital, not only for the earth, but vital for our economy and vi- vital for our economic survival. To rely on other countries and, and uh, uh, is, 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 just doesn't make sense anymore. It really doesn't. And so you've got a president who understands that and, and really incentivizing all of this. And, and we're so appreciative of it. Not just our president, Joe Biden, but uh, the current president. I want to give a shout out to the former president, Um, uh, because of an initiative that he started that speaks to uh, what we are discussing, um, you know, before we go to break. Um, We we talk about this groundswell of interest in organizing, and uh, there was a new initiative to train existing members and connect them with their peers uh, so they can answer questions, they can help workers understand their rights. That initiative was started by the USW's late president and somebody I consider uh, to have been a great friend and certainly a great friend to the program, uh, Tom Conway. Uh, The USW is eager to continue building it out to honor his legacy. Just this past fall, 700 workers at Bobcat in Bismarck, North Dakota, voted to join the USW and 200 more at the Bobcat facility in Rogers, Minnesota. Uh, We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Maria. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away. doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. And we're glad to have back with us Maria Soma, not just back from the break, but back uh, from being on the show in the past. Maria's organizing director for the United Steelworkers. Please go to the website, check it out. You know, I've learned a lot, uh, you know, from going to the website and I know you will as well, uh, whether you're part of the USW, you're just curious, maybe you were like, hey, you know, benefits of being a union worker look pretty good. Want to look into doing it in my workplace. Go to USW.org. Also, on X, formerly Twitter, I'm still like, ugh, I still want to say Twitter, you know, X is harder to come out. Uh, on X and Instagram, follow them there at Steelworkers and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Steelworkers. Uh, Maria, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, and, um, y- you know, in, in talking about all of this, because it's our last segment in the hour, uh, the final step 
in organizing. A lot of people would think, well, you know, it was a vote, whether up or down, hopefully, you know, successful. Um, but actually, the final step, the big B of the final step is, is first that contract, right? Absolutely. We don't, a victory doesn't change, a union election doesn't change anyone's life. A union contract does. Yeah. I mean, when you look at a corporation, let's take Starbucks as an example. Um, they double down on their efforts and, you know, with the contract or leading up to the contract, they're trying to break the workers, not collective bargaining strength, but the will. They're trying to, you know, beat them down a lot of times, these corporations, when they get to the finish line with that contract, right? Absolutely. Um, they know that if they can't stop the election and the workers from voting for the union, they can certainly delay it and stop it through the bargaining process by refusing to, to bargain, um, to bargain uh, you know, uh, with good intent, good faith bargaining. They don't. Yeah. And it, you see you see protracted bargaining. Right. I mean, we see that mm -hmm. as Kumho, uh, uh, OHL, Geodis. Uh, USW ultimately successful in both those cases. Those are just two examples, but they seem to want to drag this out. And, and you know, and 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 I, th I think they think, you know, somebody says somebody once told me the farthest you you get. Oh, well, here's an here's an example in in um, in my husband's office years ago when I worked there, um, you know, he's a physician. And if somebody had a big um, co-insurance do right deductible, mm -hmm. right. And say it's thousands of dollars, you know, that some people, you know, have, you know, because they're having, you know, multi-level surgery, right? And mm -hmm. I, I was always taught the farthest away you get from getting that money, the harder it is to collect. And I, I think it's similar in collective bargaining, which I think corporations are, you know, looking like, you know, if you keep it going on and on and on and on, you know, they're, they're not, they're going to give up. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to get tired. They're going to forget. But that's not that's not going to happen, especially when you have somebody like the USW uh, backing you. Absolutely. I mean, at Kumo and OHL, which you talked about, Kumo Tires, a tire company in Macon, Georgia, it took us two elections and six years to finally get a contract. We bargained for two and a half years. And the entire time, the employer was still continuing to union bus there. Um, and those workers initially, when we filled out the union authorization cards, this is an employee who fought us, not like Cleveland Cliffs, who let the workers decide. Kumo fought us, We um, uh, and it took us, uh, again, six years to to, to achieve a contract. We had 85% support on cards in the first election in 2017, and, uh, and we lost the election. We then filed for a second election um, a year later, a little over a year later, and we went ahead and finally won that election and proceeded to bargain. And we won the election in 2019. We didn't get to bargaining until 20, and uh, it's been now really... 2023, since they ratified their election just a few months, uh, excuse me, ratified their contract just a few months ago. That's how long that process took. And OHL was longer. And we're just now achieving a final TA. They will, they will go through a ratification vote, I think, sometime this week or next week. And that was over six years of bargaining after the election. Over six years. So let's talk mm -hmm. about, we've talked about what workers have done. We've talked about what the administration has done. We've talked about some successes with some, you know, different companies, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Buy America, Clean Energy. Um, but something that workers 
definitely need, is something that would help them um, successfully weather these challenges that we talk about that they face, uh, you know, uh, you know, along this uh, very sometimes long uh, path to getting what they deserve uh, is the PRO Act. I'm sure you would agree. Uh, could you tell our listeners and viewers a bit about the PRO Act and why it's essential for workers and their success? Uh, I'm so glad you brought it up. I think that, you know, people think, well, you're allowed to organize under the law, the National Labor Relations Act. But what they don't understand is that the, 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 the employers don't care about that law. And, um, and that law has been, um, you know, changed and altered, not the law itself, but the, the case law around it and how employers can act and, and what's illegal and what is legal has changed throughout the years. And so this process has been broken for a very long time. Right now, it's extremely difficult to organize. People think that you just hand out a flyer, you go to an election, and it happens. It's often a long, arduous process where the employer intervenes um, and bullies workers and really, uh, you know, fires and terminates workers, has massive captive audience meetings, uh, disciplines workers, changes shifts, do all sorts of things during this entire process. Also reclassifying them, right? I mean, uh, you know, you're you're full time and all of a sudden you're like a freelancer. Absolutely, right? You become a 1099er. This uh, misclassification of workers has been a, a many decades problem and something that I hope that we'll fix at some point. But the PRO Act really looks at a lot of these different points that are the most egregious and hard for the workers to actually organize and tries to fix them, right? And so they then, uh, underneath the PRO Act, it really puts some harsh punishment for the employers who break the law. Uh, they're not changing the, the, you know, what breaking the law underneath the NLRB looks like. What they're saying is that there aren't enough harsh punishments. And if you break the law, you should be punished harsher. Um, That it really is illegal to constantly be bullying these workers. The other thing that the PRO Act really does is to try to get the, um, the NLRB's process to be quicker, uh, and, and to speed up that process and to make the uh, elections um, easier to get to without unnecessary employer delays. And right now the act allows a lot of, a National Labor Relations Act allows a lot of uh, that. But to me, like I said earlier, one of the key uh, components of the PRO Act is that you don't change people's lives until you get a contract, not winning an election. And the PRO Act addresses that. It allows um, uh, allows for mediation and arbitration uh, to come into play in order to ensure that workers who have fought hard through this arduous process actually achieve that first contract in a timely manner. So those are really some key components to the PRO Act and, 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 and one that isn't outrageous, although the, uh, you know, the employers in corporate America will cry, this is horrific, the worst thing possible to American industry. And it's absolutely not true. The PRO Act makes common sense things to put into place to control how employers have been illegally breaking the law for decades. And the PRO Act is trying to put some balance back into the system. Yeah, I mean, there have to be meaningful penalties against these employers who are who are, you know, uh, who, who are practicing illegal uh, things, uh, bullying uh, the uh, worker that is trying to unionize and intimidating 
uh, workers out of forming a union. I mean, you know, you want to talk about that. That's what was happening back in the day on the Gilded Age that I'm watching on HBO, <laughs> you know, and things uh, until things turned around. Um, and uh, also the National Labor uh, Relations Board, right? Their election process that needs to be updated so that workers can petition to form a union, get a timely vote uh, without unnecessary interference from the employer or the delays uh, that we talked about. And improvements to mediation, arbitration language, all needed in order to ensure that newly organized facilities can reach that first contract. Yeah. Uh, with less than 60 seconds, less than a minute before we finish uh, the hour, what would you like to leave our viewers and listeners with, Maria? I'd like them to know that there's hope out there and that we've got a president who's created an opportunity uh, for workers to freely choose. And I'd like them to know that there's labor unions out there who are committed to them and their communities and making sure that we're able to help improve their lives. Uh, and, you know, uh, we really need to it doesn't come um, naturally by itself. You need to fight. And so if workers are willing to stand up for their rights, their communities' rights, and helping improve their lives, join us in this fight to make sure that they have what they deserve. Well said. Maria, <laughs> love having you on. I'm glad you came back and you had the time. I appreciate you taking the time today. I know you're very busy. Uh, and also because we're in holiday season, so a lot of us working, you know, uh, double and triple time because to make up for all the time we take off for holidays, right? Uh, Maria Soma, thank you for joining us. Organizing Director for the USW. Check them out on their website, USW.org. On X, formerly Twitter and Instagram, follow them there at Steelworkers and follow them on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Steelworkers. Want to thank Maria. Want to thank my executive producer, Marky Mark Grimaldi, and all of you listening and watching. I hope you have a wonderful, safe uh, rest of the day. I'm Leslie Marshall.